This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you again for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, just want to pray and ask you would be lifted up. Father, we would see Jesus. God, we pray you refresh our hearts and our minds that when we walk away from this message, this time, Lord, we would, we would know that we have been changed because we have an encounter with you. Thank you, God, for your love, for your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've been told that I need to slow down when I'm speaking, so I will do that. Okay, well, I'm going to share my testimony with you, how I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Uh, the year was 1978. My parents immigrated from northwest India, Punjab, and uh, they came to Southern California. There was already a group of Indian people there, and uh, my parents already had three daughters. I was born in the year 1979. I'm not going to tell you my age. You can guess from that. So, but I was born in 1979, and I grew up in a very interesting family. I had a younger brother and younger sister who were also born after me. But we were the three that were born in America. Three older sisters that were born in India and three younger children that were born in America. I grew up in Southern California and I was in the midst of, when you think of Southern California, you just think of America. You think of Hollywood and you think of California when you're in Southern California. Southern California exists like its own entity. Like we don't know anything else outside Southern California. And so this is how I grew up. I also grew up in a very traditional home. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about my religious background. And at first it's going to sound quite confusing and quite contradictory. But in India there is no contradictions. <laughs> I grew up with a Hindu background. Uh, and in India, some Hindu theologians have tried to find fundamentals of Hinduism, but they have failed simply because it's variant in uh, different parts of India. So in different parts of India, they emphasize certain gods. Other parts of India, they emphasize certain gods. And in my own house, you'll find like there are various statues, Krishna statues and Shiva statues and Ganesha statues. And depending on what's your flavor or your background or tradition, usually determines what god that you worship. Parts of India, you know, they actually worship rats. You know, just depending on where you go in India, you'll find all sorts of things. So I grew up with a Hindu background. I also come from a Sikh background as well. Although I didn't wear a turban, my relatives wore a turban. And on Sunday, we went to the Gudwada, which is the Sikh temple. I uh, used to wear the kara, which is the metal bracelet. And you'll see a lot of Punjabi Indians wearing the metal bracelet. In fact, if uh, someone is Punjabi, one of the ways to distinguish them from other Indians is that the males will be wearing a metal bracelet. And if you see an Indian wearing a metal bracelet, the males just say, you're Punjabi. And they will be so happy. They're like, oh, you know my culture. You know, so they're going to be extremely happy with that. And so I grew up wearing this metal bracelet because I was Punjabi. And this is how it was. And I didn't just also grow up with sort of a Hindu background and sort of a Sikh background. I also came from a certain sect of Hinduism called Radha Swamis. Radha Swamis have two main emphasis in life. Okay? Even though there was a Sikh teacher leading the Radha Swami sect, we had, it was so funny, we'd go there sometime to the various meeting places and there'd be just Indian people and there'd be a lot of white hippies as well. And uh, this particular sect emphasized 
two major things, reincarnation and vegetarianism. So I grew up a vegetarian. So I knew about potlucks and haystacks before I became Adventist. No joke, I really grew up like this. And so it was like a perfect slide. So this is how I grew up. I would sometimes come home from work and I would see my dad who worked two jobs. He was a security guard and he was a janitor at the local college. I'd sometimes come home and he would just be working that overnight, then he'd work during the day and for about three or four hours he'd go to sleep and I'd go into his room, he'd wake up and he would be meditating. He was a deeply spiritual person. He really loved spiritual things. And what was so funny one day is that one day I walked into his room and there was this little altar cabinet and I opened it up and there was a statue of Krishna, a statue of Shiva, and uh, he had a statue of Joseph and Mary missing the baby Jesus. He just wanted to make sure he covered everything. <laughs> and so my dad was a very interesting person. I'll share a little bit more about him. But I come from a very academically inclined family. If you're Indian, you know what I'm talking about. My family really emphasized academics. For fun, my family would take us to the library when we were younger. Um, my sister, my oldest sister, is a lawyer. The sister after is a doctor. The sister after is another doctor. My younger sister is uh, an accountant who's working for a well-known space firm down in Southern California. My brother's finishing something his master's at USC. And so my family is very academic. My sisters were helping my dad with their pre, with, in their preteens with his taxes. No joke. That's how my family is. And so my dad really wanted education for his family. He really believed in education. He worked very hard to provide an education. Unfortunately, he spent so much time working, it cost him his life with all the stress. Three heart attacks finally took him out. And so I grew up with this background. My dad was somebody who was very interesting. Oftentimes, he would have us watch a movie about Jesus during Christmas time. This was something very interesting, interesting to me because I didn't know too much about Christianity, but I was introduced to uh, the Christian God when I was watching this movie about Jesus. Indians love movies, especially Bollywood movies. And so, you know, we'd watch a movie about Jesus during Christmas time. I remember one time my dad went to the park with us and there was a church that was actually having an outside service. He left us and sat in the outside service and joined them. It was amazing. So this is the background I grew up with. I grew up in a tension between the Hindu traditional culture and then when I left my house, I grew up with the American rebellious culture. This is what I was oftentimes stretched between. Now, as I said before, my family was extremely traditional. Down in Southern California, there was a very special event. It was called India's Independence Day. Now you're thinking, what would it be doing in Southern California? Well, India was freed from Britain rule in 1947, August 15. So August 15, all the Indians that are in Southern California get together. And you don't see Indian, you don't see any white people, black people, uh, Asian people for miles, just Indian people. And so every year there would be this celebration called India's Independence Day. And I would go to this celebration as a young boy and there would be various booths that were set up in a giant park. And so I would take my bag and I would go from booth to booth to get all the various free things. There was an I Love India pencil, I would take it and I'd put it in my bag. There was an I Love India shirt, sponsored by India Taxes. And so I would take this free shirt and I would put it in my bag. Well, one day at the age of 13, as I was walking in um, this 
particular park on August 15th where just tons and tons of Indians, I came across something very unusual. There was one of the booths and it looked quite strange. I was like, this is so unusual. This is not like the other booths. What it was, was a small boat. A small boat. And there was a little staircase leading into this small boat. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I should check this out. So I walked in as a young boy, age 13, and there I saw in this small boat an elderly Caucasian lady giving Bible stories to Indian children. I had no clue how she got there. <laughs> and so what was so strange is this woman was giving stories about Jesus. And here he is, she's talking to all... She, she probably didn't tell the other Indian people what was going on, but so, so uh, she's wise as a serpent and so harmless as a dove. So here she is, she's giving Bible stories, and what that little boat was was a replica of Noah's Ark. And so she was there, and I sat down, and she was just talking away. I didn't understand a word she was saying until she said something. At the very end, she said, who would like to accept Jesus in your heart? None of the Indian kids raised their hand. We're not very emotional. And so she said again, who would like to accept Jesus in your heart? Nobody answered. Finally, she said, you'll get this free Bible. And I only heard one word, free. I raised my hand. She said, all right, you're going to accept Jesus. I still have that Bible today. It has my name. It has the date. It even has the name of the woman who was doing that child evangelism. I actually called the company up. She passed away. But, uh, you know, this woman does not realize the fruits of her labor. And so I had that Bible. That was my very first Bible. And that Bible has been with me since then. It's in my uh, house in Modesto. But what's so interesting is that I do what most people do after they accept Jesus and they get a brand new Bible. I took that Bible and I just popped it into the bookcase and I kept it there for many years. And so I grew up continuing with high school. As I said before, my family was very academically inclined. However, I was considered the black sheep of the family because oftentimes I would spend hours and hours simply playing video games. Some of you know what I'm talking about still. And so this is what I would do. Until the age of 18, something happened. I graduated from high school, and all my sisters, while they were in the university, or they were in med school, or they were in law school, I thought to myself, I'm going to be very intelligent. I'm not going to go straight to the university. I'm going to go to community college, two years, save a bunch of money, and then transfer. Well, that was a complete lie. I ended up spending four years at that community college. <laughs> four years at that community college. But my family wanted me to go into pre-med, and they wanted me to do computer science. I had a desire to get into law. I wanted to be a lawyer like my sister. However, my family thought that that was too long of a road. So as I was just finishing up my general education, I began to do something that many American young people do. I got extremely bored of the classes, and I oftentimes ditched the classes. I would simply show up on the test day, pass the test, and the rest of the time, I wouldn't be showing up for class. An interesting thing is that I would often go to the library as a substitute. You would think of all the places to ditch a class. You go to the library. That's exactly right. I went to the library. And at the library, I began to study up on various things. 
This was the time during Y2K, the Y2K, Y2K scare. The year was 1999. A lot of people were talking about the end of the world, an anarchy that was about to break out because of the computers that potentially might shut down and destroy all of the infrastructure of the United States and the rest of the world. And so I was like, okay, I have to be prepared for that. So in that time, I turned into sort of a mini doomsday prepper. I so began to sort of stockpile some water in my closet, bought a little BB gun. I thought, what if the world ends? Well, what was so interesting was the year 2000 came and nothing happened. But at that time, while I was studying up on this subject, I came across Christian literature that was about the end of times. I never went to a church. But I began to read books about various Protestant ministers who were talking about end times, like Hal Lindsey and uh, John Hagee, well-known mainstream Protestant ministers who are all about end time events. Unfortunately, they change every other week, depending on what Israel is doing. And so I began to read all these things, and I began to study all these things, and then one day, something strange happened, and it's not the lights, okay? <laughs> the lights went on, <laughs> okay. One day something strange happened. This is, what str this is what was so strange, okay? I came to the conclusion while I was sitting in my bed that the Antichrist identity was finally revealed to me. I absolutely knew who it was. I said, I know who the Antichrist is after watching some news. I really believed at that time it was Saddam Hussein. Well, we know now it's not Saddam Hussein, but... <laughs> You know, I thought, it's Saddam Hussein. It absolutely has to be Saddam Hussein. It just made sense. He was causing a lot of problems for Israel at that time in the Middle East. So I said, wow, I have to let people know about that. And I thought to myself, what if God has called me to assassinate the Antichrist? <laughs> I just had some foolish, foolish, foolish thoughts. Foolish thoughts, okay? Here's the thing. Praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit is gentle and patient with us. Amen? And I thought about all sorts of things about the Antichrist. I said, I have to get the word out. Well, I was working at this retail store. I had just started there, and I started going to the lunchroom time during the break time, and I started telling people about who I believe the Antichrist was. I came across one lady. She was reading this really trashy novel, but she was hiding it under some like, uh, lunch, lunch bag, and she would be opening it and reading it. And I said, Margaret, I know who the Antichrist is. And she would say to me, who? And she closed her book. And I said, it's Saddam Hussein. And she would say, oh, that's nice, honey. And she'd go back to reading. <laughs> no joke, it happened just like that. I came across another guy. His name was Ron. He'd kind of be drinking a little bit, you know, during the break time in his covered up beer can. And I said, Ron, I figured out who the Antichrist was. And he said, who, buddy? I said, it's Saddam Hussein. He said, that's good, buddy, and go back to drinking. Well, there was another individual who started working there. Six foot, six guy, black guy, big guy, 300 pounds, had this fro. I mean, he was just a really big guy. He showed up. I actually called security on him once because I didn't know he was working there. And so, let me just tell you, this guy went on to become my best friend. So he was there. He showed up in the break room one day, and he was there. His name was Abraham. Abraham. And so he was there, and I said, Abraham, I have some very interesting news for you. And he said, what? I said, I know who the Antichrist is. I said it very solemnly. And he would say, who? And I said, it's Saddam Hussein. Just like that. I remember I was at the door, and he was just sitting down, 
And what was so funny, without just batting an eyelid, he said, no, it's not, it's the Pope. <laughs> I met my, Indian, uh, my Adventist counterpart. He's very blunt, like me. And so I said, what? And this was the first time that someone actually began to engage me back. And I sat down, and he began to tell me what the Bible was saying about the Antichrist and about prophecy. And I was so blown away because intellectually, I had already rejected Hinduism because I found nothing factual or true or anything that was satisfy satisfying the soul at that time. So I was in the process of searching. And I praise the Lord that God was drawing me step by step to Him. Amen? The Holy Spirit doesn't start working our heart when we get baptized. He started a long time ago. Amen? And so the Holy Spirit was leading me step by step. And my friend Abraham began to just really open up the scriptures to me. I never forgot one day we'd be pushing carts. And I'd be like, Abraham, what happens to people when we die? When you die? And he would explain to me the state of the dead. And I was like, that just makes sense. And he began to explain all sorts of things. But let me just tell you about Abraham Hardaway. Abraham was somebody who grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. He actually got kicked out of academies. He was somebody who wasn't even baptized at that time. He was troublesome in school. But his mom had been praying for him that he would be able to meet a good friend he could witness to. And the Lord sent me as an answer to that prayer. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, so, so this is what happened. He began to share Bible prophecy with me, and I was so blown away. And this is, one, this is something that just was so special because I began to ask all sorts of questions and we began to have all sorts of experiences. He even took me to church and at that time I was really, 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 really wearing some baggy clothes, okay? I'm about a size 34. At that time I was wearing size 44 pants. <laughs> and I actually grew out my bangs at that time. Remember that when people used to shave their head and put, yeah, okay. I actually grew out my bangs. I used to dye them red and then braid them. I was a very strange Indian, very strange Indian. <laughs> so this is what I grew up with. I just grew up just really being quite unusual. And so, you know, and my friend Abraham, and so we were just very much nonconformist. And so as I began to just learn so much about the Bible, one day Abraham said, hey, we're going to do something special. I said, what? He says, we're going to hear a powerful speaker. I said, who? He's like, come on, I'll show you. He took me to an evangelistic series that was taking place in Southern California. And when I walked in there, it was this huge auditorium. And I sat down, and there were so many people there. And the person who was speaking was none other than Mark Finley. And Mark Finley was just preaching his heart out. And you know how he kind of rocks robotically at that time. I mean, he was just, I just still remember it. And he was just speaking powerfully. What was so funny is... You know, when people are going to listen to this recording, they're not going to know what's going on. <laughs> For those who are, we're just letting you know there's difficulty with the lights. Okay. <laughs> so, as this was happening, okay, I remember I was sitting there, and it was just like everyone was just intensely focused on the stage. Fifteen minutes, I said, I want to leave. I don't want to be there anymore. It was just, I was just claustrophobic. I didn't like having people surround me. I just didn't like the spiritual atmosphere. It was just too thick. So Abraham said, all right, let's leave. We left. He continued giving Bible studies. And let me tell you something. It wasn't a Mark Finley that won me to the Lord. Amen. It wasn't a Doug Batchelor. It wasn't a Joe Cruz. It wasn't some powerful preacher. It was a backslidden, struggling Seventh-day Adventist that won me to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. There's hope for you too. Amen. 
Amen? God can use you. It doesn't matter who you are. He can use you in a powerful way. And he used this kid who really had a lot of issues. But this kid was so loved by all of heaven, just like you are. And God was using him in a powerful way. It's just like the story when that man gets to heaven one day and he only has one star on his crown. He talks to the guy that has five stars on his crown and he says to the guy with five stars, hey, I only got one star and you got five. And he says, yup. And the man with one star says, but did you see that man with that crown with his stars falling over, with his head falling over, his crown falling over? He's like, I won that one person. You never know what God can do with that one person you win. Can you say amen to that? And so this is what was happening and so God began to lead me, and both of us were actually baptized in the year 2000. I actually stepped into the water before he was, and I was baptized, so I hold it against him. Oh, I was baptized before the guy that won me to the Lord. So we were both baptized in the year 2000, and we were so excited, but at the same time, I started facing a lot of problems with my family. My family was very upset that I had become Christian. A lot of altercations broke out between me and my uncles. They were very upset. My dad was very silent during this time. He really wouldn't take a stance. My mom was very angry that I had become a Christian. At the same time, because of my unconverted heart, I didn't know how to deal with questions and challenges that would come from people. My old nature would just revert to fighting or arguing or just wanting my own way. But I praise God that he's merciful. Can you say amen to that? He never takes his eye off us. And what happened is, my dad passed away in the year 2001. It was the first funeral I went to. Now, when my dad died, it's very interesting, in the Sikh culture, when somebody dies, immediately after someone passes away, the Sikhs will send priests, and what they'll do is a, they do a sort of a rest in peace ceremony where they have three priests who will show up to your house, Sikh priests, and for three days straight, they will read from the Sikh holy book nonstop. In fact, when one gets tired, blah, 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 he'll get tired, the other one comes up and just begins to finish just to make sure that they would continue for three days straight. So like just a few days after my dad passed away, people came by, the Sikh priest would have their little canopy set up in the house, and they began their work of sort of just reading the Sikh holy book to help the soul just reach peace. I remember one time I was coming down at 2 a.m. and they were just reading away, reading away nonstop. And so I was really confused with just a lot of things that were happening at that time. In addition, my dad happened to die on one of the Hindu days that are considered cursed. That if somebody dies on this particular day, your whole family will be cursed. So my uncle sent, a, sent for a Hindu priest who was doing a counterspell over my dad's body. And so I was really confused. I had just become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and then all these things were happening to me, and it was just such a dark time for me. But I praise the Lord. I love what it says in Psalms 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to them that have a broken heart. Can you say amen to that? God was with me and he held me during that time. And he helped me to get through one of the greatest trials in my life, my father's passing. The one individual who influenced me spiritually more than anybody else, who sacrificed more for me than anybody else. And so as I continued to move on with my life, my uncles became more agitated with me. They said, you need to stop going to church on Saturday. You need to start working and you need to support the family. And so there was a lot of problems and I was praying, God, you need to get me out of this situation. My Christianity is not going to survive here. That very moment, God began to do something so special. I walked downstairs and my mom was already taking off my house key, off my ring, and she said, leave. Now my mom was saying, Indian moms just tend to be extremely emotional. Sometimes they don't mean what they say. Some Indian people know what I'm talking about. 
But at that moment, that's what was in her heart, frustration. And I love my mom to death, and I know she loves me. And what happened is I left my house. I moved in with my friend Abraham, and we began to pray. I began to pray about my future. I began to pray. I said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I want to go into law. My family wants me to do this. But what do you want me to do? As I was praying one night, God really impressed me. Missionary school. Just out of the blue, missionary school. We talked to our pastor, and the pastor was a really great guy. He told his church board, we need to get these kids to Amazing Facts College of Evangelism. And what the church did, churches don't do this anymore. They paid for everything. Everything. They spent so much money, thousands of dollars, to send these two young people to Amazing Facts. And boy, when we showed up, we were the most unsightly group of individuals. <laughs> but it was so amazing. I began to learn about the scriptures, began to meet all sorts of people, have godly teachers. They began to pray. We began to do outreach. And I really, really enjoyed what was happening there. In fact, towards the very end of it, I began to pray. I said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I'm interested in getting more schooling. At the same time, I had met somebody, and uh, she wanted to marry a pastor. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm not actually a pastor, but maybe I should go to school to be a pastor. So the Lord used my foolishness as well to bring me into pastoral ministry. And so um, what happened was I began to pray. I said, God, what school do you want me to go to? I want to continue with my education. I want to finish up my degree in pastoral ministry. And I applied to Southern. I applied to Andrews. I applied to La Sierra. I applied to every Adventist college. And every one of them said, yes, 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 yes. One problem, finances. I was still under the age of 24, and the financial um, aid statement required a signature from my mom if you were under the age of 24 at that time and my mom wouldn't sign that. I said, God, what am I supposed to do? We're coming right down to the very end. I met some good people, the Parkers, Alan and Nicole Parker. They really took care of me at that time and they're still some of my best friends today. And what happened is they said, how about Weimar College? Now I had seen some of the students from Weimar College and let me just tell you something. In the beginning I was not impressed. And so again, it's just this sinful perspective coming out. And so, hey, Weimar is modernized, okay? So, and so we, there, I said, okay, Weimar College. I said, God, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to provide. I have absolutely no money whatsoever. And so for that two weeks that was between the very beginning of Weimar College and the very end of Amazing Facts, I began to pray even fast, did some call portering. I had a little bit of experience doing call portering. And uh, what was so amazing was on the very last day when a, a down payment was due, I remember I forgot, I was, just, I was just praying. I said, God, the money is due today. What are you going to do? I have, if I'm going home after this, and I'm not going to be a Christian anymore knowing that. As soon as I was done praying, I get a phone call. It was one of my Bible students, and she said, by the way, I just want to tell you something. I have some money for your college. I said, What? I immediately raced over there, and we went over to the financial aid office, and I was able to put a down payment. I began my first summer at Weimar College. Only had to do two years because of all the credits that transferred over, but I was really excited. And as I began to just go on from semester to semester, God led me by faith. I mean, there was times where I was just like, God, I'm not going to be able to just make it to the next semester. It was very difficult going into the financial office. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It can be very scary. Yeah, when they tell you, you don't have money. And so they would, you know, oftentimes I would go in there just like scared and doubtful, walk into the financial office, and she would say, 
you don't have any money. The last quarter needs to be paid off, and you don't have money for the next quarter, or next semester, excuse me. And so I was like, God, what do you want me to do? I began to pray, and I was going to do camp counseling for the summer, but God impressed me to do call portering. And so I did it in the year 2003. I did call portering for an entire summer, and it was just a powerful experience. It just really broke me and builded me back up at the same time. And so, yeah, that's what it does. And so at the very end of it, you know, I was like, okay, I didn't even make enough money, okay? I didn't really make a lot of money. I probably would have made more money doing camp counseling. But I did what God wanted me to do. And so at the very end of it, I said, okay, God, I did what you want me to do. I didn't have enough money, but I picked up my phone, and I called up the, the financial office, just trembling, and I was calling her up. And I said, this is Anel. I need to speak to the financial person. And when she answered, she was like, hi, Anel. She was just super positive. And... Uh, She's used to giving bad news. And so like, I said, yes? And she said, how are you doing? I said, I want to find out what my uh, current statement is. And she said, well, you're not going to believe this. I said, please tell me. She said, the day that you actually left to do call portering, I got an anonymous caller, and she paid off everything from the last semester. And then she said, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you next. I said, what? She just called right before you did, and she wants to pay for the next semester. I was so blown away, and I realized that God had been really providing for me and would continue to provide me for me, but he would lead me step by step. Now, what was interesting is that as I was getting down, let me just give you one more experience where this happened as well. As I was coming down to one semester, I went into the financial office, and I was praying with the lady, and she said, let's just pray. And so we prayed, and I walked away. And I was like, okay, God, this is a lot of money. I need five grand. You know, I just need some five grand ASAP. Walked away, and I was going to do my work. And uh, all of a sudden, about one hour later, I would say, I get this call. And it's the financial lady, financial lady. She said, hey, some amazing things have happened. I said, what? She said, I just got a call from a certain person. She said, I didn't know the person. And she's calling. She wants to pay for your semester. And then she said, you want to know the most amazing part? I said, what? She was impressed exactly one hour ago. What were we doing one hour ago? Praying. God answers prayer. Can you say amen to that? Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages, in the chapter entitled The Invitation, when we seek to make the service of God supreme in our life, He has more than a thousand ways to provide of which we know not. Amen? So make God's will first in your life. He promises to lead and guide. And so step by step, God began to lead me. But here's something else. At the same time that I was in Weimar College, I had, an, I had a very um, frightening thing that happened to me. And that was public speaking. I absolutely was terrified of public speaking. I, in fact, one time I was invited to go do some public speaking for a church before I went to Weimar College. And I, the pastor said, hey, I want you to do tithes and offering. I got up there to do tithes and offering. I messed up so bad that I actually stopped speaking and I just stared at everybody. <laughs> the pastor actually had to come up and finish it for me. No joke. And so when it came to going to Weimar College, you know, I, would, I hadn't taken the homiletics class. I was completely terrified of speaking. Very terrified. In fact, one of the first weeks that I was actually at Weimar College, I had a nightmare, and this is my nightmare. I dreamed that I was at Doug Bachelor's church, which wasn't too far away, and somehow I was near the stage when news came out that Doug Bachelor couldn't, wasn't able to make it, and they said, Anel, we're going to need you to speak, <laughs> and so I get up there to speak, 
And that's when the nightmare, that's when the nightmare ends. And I woke up, no joke, in a cold sweat. And so I begin to pray every single day and claim the promise that God gave to Moses, I will be with your mouth. Amen? I will be with your mouth. And I will give you words that your enemies cannot resist. And over again, for a whole year, I was praying that. And so that's one of the reasons why I believe God led me into call porting, was to teach me how to talk and to just to be able to have a, a good dialogue with people. But what was so interesting, at the very end of Weimar College, the dean gathers all the pastoral ministry students and says, hey, there's an opportunity that's opened up. Doug Batcher needs somebody to speak. Who wants to speak? I raised my hand because no one raised their hand. And then it dawned on me, what did I just do? I went up there, and at his church, Sac Central, I went up there to speak. First thing I said was, God has fulfilled my nightmare. But step by step, God began to lead me, right? When you dedicate your talents to God, God will take your talents and He will multiply them. Can you say amen to that? So I've got to speak in a, a whole bunch of different places. Just came back from England about a month ago. I'm supposed to go to some different places next year. Some of you people at PUC, I'm going to see you next year and at Southern next year. I have some dates there. And so God has opened up some awesome opportunities for me. But in the beginning, I was terrified about doing God's will. Oftentimes, the very thing we're so afraid of is the very thing God is calling us to do. And the devil knows what that potential is. Ellen White makes a remarkable statement. She says, there is within the congregation men who all they need is the skillful hand of God to touch their dormant faculties and they will rise to the level of the world's greatest men. There are people like that in this group today. I believe it with my whole heart. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Soon as I was done with Weimar, I was praying about God's will. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I get this call from a good friend. And he said, hey, I want you to be our youth pastor slash Bible worker. I said, okay. So I did that for a year and a half. Wonderful experience. It was Arroyo Grande. You could see the ocean. Beautiful. Pismo Beach. And I began to pray as I was nearing the end of it. Their church was asking me, please stay. We want you to continue. I said, God, I want to do your will. Whatever your will is, please show me. I get a call from my good friend Andrew and he says, hey, we have a youth evangelism team and we want you to be an assistant leader and then next year we want you to be a pastoral leader. So I did that for two years. The first year I was the assistant traveling around preaching and the next year I became the pastoral leader. At the very end of it I was praying, I said, God, where do you want me to be? And I get a call and I was an official invite to become the associate pastor at the Series SDA church. And uh, that's been like that for the last four years. Just about two months ago, they decided to make me the senior pastor of the church. And so that is where I'm at today. I am the senior pastor of the series SDA Church. If you're ever in the area, please come by. We'll take you out to lunch, except if it's on the Sabbath. So it was such a beautiful experience for me. And God has so much work to do in my life. Amen? So much work in my life. But I continue to make the will of God first. And that's my prayer for you. You'd make the will of God first in your life every single day. The Bible talks about the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are following God. They hear His voice. Jesus told Pilate, He said, Whoever, um, whoever is of the truth hears my voice. He told uh, His disciples one day about sheep and other flock, and He said, They will hear my voice and they will follow me. And I know there's people here who are hearing the voice of God and He has been leading them step by step by step and God has so much to reveal to you. 
and he wants you to follow him. It's very interesting. You look at Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. The real Noah's Ark, not that little boat that was in the Indian fair that one day. You look at Noah's Ark. You go to Noah's Ark, you look at it. You look at the dimensions that God gave. God was very exact. The size, the length, the width. God even told Noah the material to use. He says, says Noah, here's the design. He even told Noah, I'm going to fill. And he filled it with the animals. Now, if you were to take that same boat and you were to take it to the boat makers of today, you know what they would say? That boat is going to sink. You know why? That boat's not going to go nowhere. There's no motor. There's no rudder. There's no oars. There's no sail. Yet that was the only boat that survived. Do you know what God is doing with your life, folks? He is making your life something that he himself can guide. Not something you can guide, but he himself can guide because he wants to take you to heaven. Amen? And the Bible talks about how one day we're going to be in the new Jerusalem. And what's so beautiful about the new Jerusalem is that it's a perfect cube. There's only one other perfect cube in all the Bible. The most holy place. You look at the new Jerusalem and you see the new Jerusalem has at the very bottom the foundations made of different stones. And you know where those stones are from? The high priest's garment. What is God saying about the New Jerusalem? He says, in it, essentially, are going to be the people who will be able to have a very special communion with me that nobody in the universe will be able to have. One day, we will sit with God, and we will see His face. Heaven is worth it. Heaven is worth it. And this world is full of a whole bunch of disappointments and sorrows, but if we stay on the path, God will see us through. He will see us through. Can you say amen to that? I'm going to end with this story and then we're finished. story I like to end with at the end of my evangelistic series. I just really believe it's pertinent for this. Well-known story. It's the story of two missionaries who had spent time in Africa. They were an elderly company, uh, couple. They spent 10 years in Africa. And they were coming off a boat. And they had raised up a church and seen about 100 people baptized. They threw their heart into missionary work. As they were coming off, it was just a, uh, just a really quiet area where they were at, and there really wasn't anybody there. And it was just this feeling of emptiness as they were coming off this boat. And they look off in the distance, and there they see at the other part of the harbor, they see a very big boat, and there coming off the boat was Theodore Roosevelt. He was coming off the boat and there was all this fanfare, all these, these things that were just thrown in the air, these colors and these balloons and these signs and they're welcoming home the president. He went to Africa, the same, con same continent they were in, and he went there to do hunting. He had spent a few days and he had killed some lions. And some of the people were carrying out those lion carcasses. And they were following Theodore Roosevelt as he was walking off with the gun. And everyone was just so excited that he was there and he was coming back to America. And this missionary who's noticing all this and seeing nothing before him, he turns to his wife and he says, how come we who have spent 10 years giving our heart and our mind to the work of God have nothing when we come home? Yet this man who spent 10 days in Africa killing animals, he has so many people cheering him and welcoming him home. And his wife very intelligent lady. She turns to him and she says, it's because we're not home yet. Amen. We're not home yet. Amen? Amen? Time will come 
where there will be a celebration and God's people will walk through the gates of the new Jerusalem. And can you imagine that day when the air of heaven just hits us? And we will sigh because we will know our troubles are over and happiness awaits us. How do people want to be in heaven? It's worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the greatest of sinners, Lord. Thank you, Lord, your heart is yearning, yearning to have more people in heaven, God. We know that there is plenty of room for everybody here. I pray that no one here, Lord, would be lost, but every person, God, when they face their darkest moment, would continue to keep moving forward that journey to heaven, Lord, they would sense you lifting them back up and calling them to the joy of one day seeing your face and enjoying all of heaven. Bless each person here, God, in a very special way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, real quick, you can leave if you want, but if there's any questions, we can do a little bit of questions and we'll just end. Just raise your hand. Yes, question. No, I'm the only Christian in my family. However, I will say this, that my brother and my brother-in-law are open to me praying with them. And I've been able to share some things with my sister. Some of my family members were actually uh, were very negative when I became a Christian. But because of some of the issues that have occurred in their lives, God is able to actually open up a door. Like my sister, uh, she had a wedding last moment. They said, hey, can you go up there to speak? And I just said a few words. And God really blessed the words that I said. And uh, it was just so powerful. And, you know, um, many of my relatives were just, they were really blown away. And it was just totally the Spirit of God that had opened that opportunity. But uh, they came to me and they were just really thankful. And so God has opened up a lot of opportunities for me to minister to my family. So a lot of roles have been actually reversed. So my family's not Christian, but they're more tolerable and they're seeing over time the fruits of following God. So yes. Any other questions? Yes. Well, I would say this. One of the things Hinduism is, is that Hinduism is just about a, a, a whole bunch of mythological stories and nothing that really satisfies the soul. You know, I was somebody who really loved stuff that I can study. I loved facts. I loved information. And so when I was looking at Hinduism, I really didn't see that there. The great thing about the Bible is that it's a real book about real people who had real encounters with the real God in real places. And that's what I really loved about this book. And so as I began to study the Bible, one of the things I was really interested in when I was in college, it was art history. And I was learning about the Renaissance. And so when I was learning about, you know, Daniel chapter 7 and the Antichrist, I could put it pro forma over what I already understood about a history, and it matched. And so I knew what I was hearing was truth. And I was seeing evidences of God's love for me. So, yes? I can understand Punjabi to a degree. And uh, when my parents have, my mom has Hindi television on, if there are no subtitles, I don't understand anything. So, yes. Question. It's in the chapter called The Invitation, and it says, when we seek to make the service of God supreme in our life, you type in the word supreme, he has more than a thousand ways to provide of which we know not. So if you have an Ellen White app on your iPhone, you can type in the word supreme, and type in thousand, and it will come up under Desire of Ages. Which one? 
Say it a little louder. Sure, I can find that quotation for you. I believe it's in the book Desire of Ages also. It's my favorite book of Ellen White's writings. And she makes that comment. I'll find it for you. If you want to come to me afterwards, I can get it for you. I'm pretty particular about making sure I'm not quoting Ellen White quotes that don't have any foundation in Ellen White's writings. <laughs> it would surprise you how many people don't. So, yes, any other questions? Yes? Atrophy? You know, one thing I will say is this, is that Adam's sin specifically affected our world. And I really believe God, in one sense, quarantined our world. And how much of was Adam's domain, I'm not sure. But God did do some type of quarantine procedures. It's very interesting. When you look at things like asteroids, and you look at, you know, like astronomers will look into the world, and they're just really surprised, like, why does the world look like a world that doesn't have much order to it? It's very interesting. I'm not going to say anything. I'll let you come up with this. She does make a comment where she does say that Satan had no more power to tempt and annoy other worlds. So it wouldn't be surprising that as he was going from place to place, the way back he made havoc of some things. I'm not talking about unfallen worlds, but things possibly between those unfallen worlds and our planet. And so many times astronomers will look and they'll see a lot of a lack of order sometimes in the universe. And I think they're looking at evidences of sin. You know, I, beyond that, I can't speculate because I don't know. Yeah, that's possible. That's definitely possible. Very interesting. All right, any last questions? Any last questions? Yes. Well, you know, if you, were you in the last session or two sessions prior? I talked about how it's very interesting in Hinduism. There is a story or there is some similarity in the story of Abraham. And Delamar makes it very clear that Abraham influenced the Canaanites. Hindu scholars believe that Hinduism had its origins around that time as well. And so the mention of Abraham is used not just in Christianity, but in, you know, obviously Judaism, in Islam and other religions as well. Abraham was, as the Bible says, the man of the East and the father of many nations. So, as far as that goes, there's really, beyond that, not too much correlation. It's just a mixture of a lot of mythological stories and, you know, uh, sort of like, the, like Greek mythology. I was one time speaking before a group of Indians. I didn't want to really go after Hinduism, so I talked about Greek mythology and how basically the Greeks fashion the gods after their own lives. And the same thing exists in Hinduism too as well. In fact, what's interesting is there's actually a lot of similarities between Krishna and Christ. And where those similarities occur, occur was not prior to the time of Christ, although there was the 
Bhagavad Gita, which was written before the time of Christ, but other writings that were written after the time of Christ that have very much close similarity to the story of Christ. But those writings came in, in A.D., which a lot of scholars believe that there was probably some influence of Christianity early on in India. And do we have any knowledge of any Christians being in India early on, sometime after the ministry of Christ? Absolutely. You have the story of Thomas. Today, there's still a sect of Indian Christians that are called Thomasites. And they take out a mock body of Thomas and they move it around. Thomas was killed by an Indian priest, stabbed in the back with a spear. So, the influence of Thomas upon that culture was probably very strong. But over time, truth became covered in legend. And the Hindu scholars, which they've done in the past, they wanted to sort of bring in the Christian Indians by simply saying, Krishna and Christ are one and the same. So, yes? Um, I was taught by, by a Hindu that Hinduism and the culture is the oldest culture in the world. Do you know what you I would say this, is that Indians sometimes, Hindus will make a boast and they'll say Hindus, uh, Hinduism is the oldest religion in this world. And I've had my uncle say that to me. But here's the thing. Some of the writings do date before the scriptures, but that does not necessarily mean that they are the oldest religion. In fact, when you take a good look at it, Abraham was called much earlier than what many scholars believe was when Hinduism actually started. So, if we're to say what was actually the oldest religion, we can say very clearly, hey, it was when God called Abraham after the flood, or even prior to that, you can deal with the antediluvian world. But we can say Abraham was older than the story of, or the origins of Hinduism. But they make that argument based upon some of the writings which predate um, the New Testament and some of what the manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament. But again, that argument is faulty simply because just because there's older documents does not necessarily mean there's, you know, there's an older old teachings. You know, um, in that book, again, by Krishna and Christ, um, Krishna and Christ are having this sort of mock discussion, and Krishna says, our writings date older than the scriptures, and Christ says, hey, before Hinduism was, I called Abraham. So, yeah. Yes? You know, the, I'll tell you this. Out of everything that I say, I said, here's the first thing I'd say is this. Early morning with Jesus. I'm not just talking about the traditional like 5 a.m. I'm talking about 2.30, 3 a.m. That special time with God and you're sitting at the feet of Jesus, the world's greatest teacher, he will teach you things you have never heard of before. It's so interesting. The mind works in a very special way and under the influence of the Spirit of God, God will expand and lead you in multiple directions. Um, so my early morning time with God is extremely important and if I sleep late early mornings don't work out very well so that early morning time is so special between me and Jesus he really shares a lot of information and second thing I do I have a network of individuals who I always run across ideas and thoughts I want to be uh, make sure that my thoughts and my ideas are not completely way off and so I oftentimes will have people, seminary students, individuals, teachers, who will criticize, I will have them personally criticize my thoughts just to make sure I'm not just, you know, whistling Dixie, whatever that means. So, 
in addition, I, not only, I try to make a study more than just the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy, I also try to study well-known Christian apologists and some of the various arguments, although sometimes it can be a little bit over to, uh, over-intellectual and it's just not satisfying to the soul. And so uh, that's, why, that's why I love the Desire of Ages. But I try to stay up on culture as well. I have three or four uh, you know, newspapers that I read every single day and they're not just American newspapers, they're newspapers outside of the U.S. It's good to get a perspective. You're staying up on culture, and you're spending time with Jesus, and you're learning so much about God and His Word, and you're sharing, and you're networking with various people. God just really, really will expand your mind and your witness. But here's the one thing I would really, really challenge you on is this. If you have the chance to give Bible studies to somebody, do it. God will lead you to different Bible students who are hungering, and each one, you're going to have to come at it in a very a different way. And as you're coming at it in a very different way, God is also stretching your mind and teaching you things as well. So I would really challenge you, if you, if you haven't given a Bible study, give a Bible study and pray that God would open up the door. I have done Bible studies with doctors, with businessmen, with philosophy students. My philosophy teacher was very difficult to give a Bible study too. <laughs> you know, like so you come across various individuals and as you learn to minister to different people, God will expand your ability to reach different people and more and more. So it's important to stay cultured. You should be able to reach the, the simple person to the studious scholar all times. So I don't know if I answered your question or just pontificated. So yes. You know one book I would highly recommend? If you have a chance to get that book by Ravi Zacharias, it's called When... It's something with Krishna and Christ, Dines with Christ. And it's sort of a, just a mock interview that takes place when Christ meets Krishna. And they have this discussion, and they're talking about their various religions. I really like that book. It's really simple, really short, but it also... He's coming at it from an Indian's perspective. Again, what's really important is not just knowing what Indians believe, or Hindus believe, but how they think. One time I came across a Hare Krishna, and he was a Caucasian fellow, and he was like, Hare Krishna at the airport, Hare Krishna. And I was sitting down, and I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to this guy. And so, you know, I sat down, and he was like, oh, you're Indian? He's like, and he began to just be really excited and start shaming, you know, all these things about uh, uh, why he was a Hare Krishna and stuff. And so I was sharing, I said, you know, you know, this is really unusual because I'm an Indian who became a Christian, and you're an American who became a Hindu. And so, like, we're talking back and forth, and he really wasn't agreeing. And then I, I said, you know, Hinduism isn't something that's quite, like, you're drawn into. It's probably something you go to simply when you're running from something else. So, what I said to him, and that's why when you go to India, you'll find a lot of people on pilgrimages from America. And so I, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how did you become a Hare Krishna? And instantly he became uncomfortable. I think a lot of people have suffered abuse at the hands of a lot of Christian leaders. And when they suffer abuse, they look for something else that might satisfy their soul, something to run, from, run into when they're running away from something. As I began to talk to him, became increasingly accurate why he became a Hare Krishna. So I think um, that book is good. I also think um, 
you know, the book that deals with Christ and who he is is going to be the best way to lead people to Christ, and that's the Bible, and specifically Desire of Ages. I really love Christ will draw all people to him of different groups, whether they're heathen, whether they're Gentiles, whether they're Jews. If Christ is lifted up, he will draw all people. So, it's called When Krishna Dines with Christ, I think. And it's a, it's a Ravi Zacharias book. All right, yes. Krishna talks with Christ, yes. Zechariah chapter 13, I believe it's verse 8. Basically, it's a story. Zechariah sees a vision of the future. He sees heaven, and there he sees in heaven a group of people who come before God, and they're surprised about one thing. They said, where did you get the scars in your hand? And the reply of Christ at that time was, I was wounded in the house of my friends which immediately lets us know, number one, there's going to be people in heaven who didn't know the gospel story, and number two, the fact that Jesus says, I was wounded in the house of my friends, says, they weren't even Jews. These people were not even connected to the gospel story whatsoever. Imagine the Magi being there. Where did you get the, these wounds? I was wounded in the house of my friends. Welcome. Yes, yes. No, I think, I think you're right in understanding the way you are. Is that, is that what God holds people accountable is, is not how much they know, but you know, if they're faithful to the light that has been revealed to them. We're not living in a world where Bibles are few. You go to America, there are Bibles everywhere. The truth is everywhere. People are lost sometimes, um, not just for rejecting truth, but for neglecting what they could have known as long as the actual possibility for them knowing is available. And that's something that God himself determines. Paul was speaking for a group of people, and that's Acts chapter 17, I believe you're quoting from, or 16, where he's quoting and speaking before um, those people. And he was making it very clear that truth was now shining to them right then and there. In fact, the Bible talks about in the book of Romans, I think it is, or the uh, Acts chapter 18, I think, that the gospel reached all of Asia Minor. So the gospel is going out all over like never before. So, but ultimately it will be based upon the light. Yes? Do you have any suggestions on how to attract the higher classes to our public evangelistic theory? You know, um, 
when it comes out, I, you know, I do evangelistic series. You, you go out and use everything. I, I bring out, I tell the church we need to health meetings. But ultimately, you know what Ellen White says will be the best way to reach rich people? Rich people. She talks about, tells the wealthy in our church, go reach out to those people. And if you can get people like that who are committed, that will be your best outreach to those people. But I, you know, I'll use, you know, evangelism. We'll do like flyers. We'll also, you know, I really, I try to prep the church up, you know, two months prior. We have, um, I just preach about evangelism, evangelism, evangelism for every sermon. And I use just all, I bring everything, you know, I try to bring every avenue. We have health meetings and everything. And the best way I found that the more affluent classes, one is by other people in the church who are in the same category. So we're always telling the rich, you know, feel bad because you're not giving money. We need to actually avoid that tactic and say, look, you're rich, go reach other rich people. Go reach people like that. And as you, we have not focused on that. We have not done that in our churches. And that's one of the reasons why I really think there's a lack. So we need to really, really just, I guess, um, motivate our, our uh, pastors and our leaders to say, look, Find, the good, find those people who've been blessed with wealth and money. Don't make them feel bad and get them involved in evangelism. You say, you go find somebody and you bring somebody. We, have, we do tabletop series at our church. I will have our Bible workers specifically pick out certain people in our church who usually won't be involved in anything else. But I know because of their background, they're going to bring people who come from the same background. So it'll be, I will be specifically targeting certain groups. Now, they don't know that. <laughs> but... Again, that's what I mean. Why is this a serpent harmless as a dove? So, yeah. When talking to someone of a sacred mindset, what evidence should we give that Abraham predates the oldest Hindu writing? Well, there are many actually scholars who will actually give dates for when Hinduism, they think Hinduism started. So it's not just like, you know, we're just saying, well, you know, here's some dates. We just believe that Abraham and the story of Genesis and stuff. We, there's actually scholars who will actually say, look, Hinduism started around this time as well. And so it's still, uh, it's a little bit cloudy about, it's around sometime during the time of Abraham, and some scholars will say it's after the time of Abraham. I tend to lead to more towards, uh, based upon other evidence, that it was sometime after the time of Abraham. And uh, so that's, there's just a lot of scholars in agreement on that. So, yes. That's right. So of course, by that time, there were already Sanskrit yeah. uh, writings. That's right. And you know what's interesting? Essentially, they're not even looking for answers. It's basically a defense of their faith and stuff. You know, I, I have done so many. I have made so many errors in reaching out to Indian people. But one thing I'm learning more and more is, again, is less dealing with the errors of Hinduism and more the affirming of the truth of Christ. And I found that to be very effective. And I often will challenge people because they know Hinduism doesn't satisfy the soul. It doesn't. The chapter in Desire of Ages, she talks about how when Jesus went into on the, the temple and there was the, the, tab, the feast, there was a certain feast, and she, Jesus sensed these people were thirsting because of the ceremonies. 
There was just nothing in these ceremonies that were satisfying to their soul. And so, I really think presenting Christ and letting them see the joy in your life and your love and constant care. Indians are very relational people, patriarchal societies, families, they stay together, and so you have to enter into that. Education is an effective way of reaching Indians because the education, Adventist education system helps with a complete change in identity when they're over there. These Indians, the religion is so intertwined with the culture. To say an Indian to stop becoming Hindu is like, stop becoming Indian. It doesn't register in their mind. It seems often offensive to them. But I think one thing that's really helped is the Adventist education. Indians are all about education. And as they go into Adventist education, and by the way, you know in America, Sikhs will send their children to Adventist schools because they believe. Sikhs are many times wealthy, small businesses. They make a lot of money. And so they'll send their kids to Adventist schools and, uh, because they know that Adventist schools are safe. And it's there that the gospel has a chance to reach hearts. So, yeah. Okay, any last question? All right. You've been a very good group. God bless you guys. And i uh, connect with you later. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.